Good evening and welcome to um, the World of Translation reading of works in progress being done by distinguished translators, whether or not they're affiliated with Penn. I'm Rika Lesser and I chair the I co-chair the translation committee. The other co-chair is Keith Goldsmith, who could not be here this evening. I'm very glad to see so many of you come out in this weather, and I am instantly going to turn the program over to our real host, Gregory Rabasa, who is a translator we hope needs no introduction. Thank you. Thank you, Rika, and welcome to this session, which will uh, be mercifully uh, fruitful, I think, where we'll try to spend as much time as we can on the actual reading of the work in progress. I've also been asked to uh, remind you that after the session, please remain for, first we'll have some questions, uh, and then uh, remain for some refreshments, uh, the reception after we have the readings. We have a mixed bag tonight, various uh, works that are being read from in different languages all into English. I think I will let the readers describe. They can best tell you in a few words what they are going to read since they are more familiar with the work than I am, but I shall tell you who the readers are. Our first uh, participant is Sarah Arvio, who will read from the Spanish. She has an MFA from Colombia, the Master of Fine Arts in Translation, does Spanish and French, has lived in Mexico, France, and Venezuela, whence the languages, and has done poetry of her own and translations in such magazines as the New Yorker, Yale Review, Massachusetts Review, American Poetry Review, and the New Directions Anthology. Her the published book of hers is Ships of Fired by the Canary Islander J.J. Uh, Armas Marcelo, which came out under Avon in 1988. And uh, right now she is, uh, the work in progress is by the Argentinian Abel Posse, whose uh, book uh, Daimon, she has translated, which will be out this year, I think it is, from Athenian, which was done with aid from the National Endowment for the Arts. It's good to see that uh, while it's still alive, that there's some large S coming out of them. So uh, further ado, I give you Sarah Arvio. Daimon, to be published by Athenaeum in November of this year, makes up part of a trilogy. Is this working all right? Makes up part of a trilogy of which The Dogs of Paradise, published two years ago, was the first part. The third is in progress. The novel takes up the story of the conquistador Lope de Aguirre, who rampaged through South America in the 1560s. You may be familiar with him from the uh, film released in the 70s, Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Aguirre was a madman and a murderer who did away with most of his companions. Posse has him and his horde 
rise from the dead to resume their expedition in search of El Dorado and moves them through time to the 20th century. Here at the opening of the novel, which I'm going to read, they're just waking from the dead 11 years after Aguirre's execution. A major arcanum, Le Jugement des Morts, The Judgment of the Dead. Those who have returned ring Lope de Aguirre. The expedition is mounted. From essence into form, variations on non-death, the horrific war of the dead. Native beasts and men discover Europe, October 12th, 1492. Aguirre and the Fiend, the sermon of the deep, yearning for unconsummated loves. And now it opens. America, all is desire, juice, blood, sap, panting, systole and diastole, food and dung, in the relentless cycle of cosmic laws that seem new to the world. Sacrifices and slaughters are followed by the rhythmic panting of copulations, births, assassinations, eradications, cataclysms. In the night, the serene dew-drenched flowers open to give birth to the seed of the giant Araucaria. Jaguars bound toward their cubs at dawn, bearing the dead stag that drips hot blood. Roused by the rubbing of the high wind-ruffled branches, the jacarandas burst into fecund clouds of yellow dust. The heliotropes, bold messengers of love, bear the, bur the burning pollen to the calluses of lusting females. Within three days, fallen coins, if not minted in gold or silver, crumble like the second-rate lumps of beet sugar manufactured by the Dutch in wartime. This they knew from experience. The profile of Charles V cropped out on a wild jasmine petal, just where Anemona Salduendo had buried her savings, out of reach of the cook, Gianni Delano, pederast and rogue. A sword left plunged in the earth by Antonia Mosso to mark the rainfall donned as a dagger. It was fact that lost bullets sprouted blossoms the following spring. Flowers easy to spot because hummingbirds shied away. Spring came suddenly amid torrents of wintry rain. In, a, in this world there was as yet no fixed progression of seasons. The smoking volcanoes seemed newly erupted. Returning to camp in the first light of dawn from his nightly war with the dead, old Lope de Aguirre came upon the humped, sleeping bodies of his troops in the dense, drenched air of the jungle where wild creatures wander. They sweated, swaddled in blankets and hides to thwart the slakeless plumbing of mosquitoes and above all the sleek vampire bats, partridge size, with the art of sucking through dainty wounds, welcomed in troubled sleep like the caresses of mothers. Some, opting for imaginary breezes, slumbered in high branches, from which they sometimes fell into the bed of mud below like giant ripe chirimoyas. In the growing light, he sat down in the clearing and watched them rise, one by one. Diego Tirado, Roberto de Coca, Nuflo Hernández, the standard bearer, López de Ayala, Blas Gutiérrez, the chronicler and scribe, 
Alonso de Anao, the priest, Jerónimo de Spinola, the shrewd Genoese, Rodriguez Viso, Sanchez Bilbao, and Diego de Torres, the falconer with his sights on sainthood. Solemnly, they passed before him and perched on the rocks along the riverbank. Only Nicephoro Mendes, the Negro with mulatto ambitions, the servant to whom he entrusted his goblet and his furors, who had died in Cumana, a barber relating tales of the Omagua and El Dorado expedition to his idle customers and hoping against hope for a job on the police force, ventured an unctuous smile, shy, still burdened by the grave, as though born again and just as awestruck. They listened to Aguirre's yammer. Marañones, Marañones, looks like none of you strayed far from my rotting carcass. Look here, Custodio Hernandez, I see you coming. Look at my hand, look at it here in the air. You who they dispatched to Merida with my right hand to serve as warning. And you, mulatto, who constructed a cage to transport my head as though it had feet or wings. Look at me good. Where are those eyelids stuck shut with dried blood? Those burst eyeballs. A long silence ensued. The old man looked around with a touch of regal pride. Half-hearted avenger, secretly flattered by the unconfessed loyalty of his people. Doña Elvira, his 15-year-old daughter, keeping her distance from the officers, demurely approached in a sort of see-through shift, as though just rising from sleep, as sexy and silly as ever. Aguirre confirmed what he had always thought and felt. Her breasts were not pigeon chicks, but two small Seville oranges, her thighs two Dorado fishes on the brink of entangling in battle. Behind her came the splendid Doña Inés de Atienza, who had not relinquished her nobility, laid out cold and flat. In silent reproach, she bled her wounds, and they gleamed in the moonlight. He had inflicted them, but with love. They barely saw each other. They were passing from essence into form, expounded the priest in a whisper. He had not yet renounced his rudimentary Thomism. Although words were superfluous, Aguirre extemporized without too much vigor, for he sensed that no persuasion was needed. What is the grave? Cool languor, at first the bliss of dying, the pleasure of liberation from the body, a sack of potatoes dra dragged from Oñate de Vitoria to Vitoria. The bliss of leaping free, of bounding to treetops, of sleepwalking on rooftops. But how long does that last? Nothing, maybe only two intense seconds, as long as a dream, and then what? Nothing, nothing. Now he seemed to be recollecting, and the fury for what was never had and what was never done, for loves and vengeances, for all that was good and bad, gold, women, El Dorado. I say nothing is discovered, nothing is finished. Planting his feet, a bullfighter braving the bull, he drew his sword, more rust than blade, and like Pizarro, etched a stripe in the sand. Those on this side are coming, everyone else to the grave. But the hunger for life was great in these men who had lived and died with the fear of death and had wasted their best years fearful and trembling. All of them jostled and crowded into the space the old man had poorly reckoned between the stripe and the river. A grand success. 
It was clear that in spite of everything, both killers and victims had reveled. They preferred the perils of adventure to limbo. It was certain. You, Diego Tirado, with your grimy beard, shall be captain of cavalry. You, Robert Roberto de Coca, murderer, shall be captain of the guard. Insults, fond military acknowledgments that did not mask Lope's joy. After the requisite sentimentality, a whoop of glee rose from the supernumeraries who had hung back meekly among the trees, observing the melodramatics of the leading players, nation of conquerors, soldiers, harquebusiers, regimental whores, cooks, workers, mulatto porters, zambo pimps, the two lepers, the Jew Lipsia, and the natives, wronged, but no less swept up in the thrill of resurrection. Let us not forget Carrion, the executioner, whose dinner, like that of the lepers, was stewed in a separate pot. You, Serrano de Cáceres, muster the people. Expedition, grand expedition, we're off. Prepare the palanquins for Doña Inez and Nina Elvira. You, Padre, wipe those scruples off your face. Celebrate the mass. The women set to washing clothes, and their peasant song rose from the still pool of the river. The cooks scrubbed their pots and pans with wet sand. When the old man stretched out in his palm hut and shut his eyes, he heard the happy cacophony of a regiment on the move. Shouts, bickering, whistling, songs, and muttered threats. Gunsmiths greasing harquebuses. The acrid smoke of swords tempered in manatee or mule oil. Mule oil. A line of gossipers waited at the cobblers with their worn-out shoes. Someone was slitting the great paiche strung from the branch of a sebo and tossing the bloody entrails to the stream. Babbling, mulattas mended fine garments with needles strung with gut of young monkey. Native women prepared tamales wrapped in banana leaves. The priest <clears throat> hunted for a good sun-warmed sun stone and patiently began to deworm his missile. He filled his cruet with manatee oil twice refined over the flame, and then, off by himself, mixed it with sweet potato flour and piously laid out more than 100 wafers to dry on the back of his cassock. He muttered, let us celebrate the mass. Indeed, we shall celebrate the mass. This time the Lord will win, cursed fiend. night. The old man waded ankle-deep into the river, reaching his left hand into space. He tried to control the trembling of his arm to take a more precise measurement. After the wars, he was left with three fingers, which he employed as a natural astrolabe. Tipping back his rusty helmet, he gazed hard into the sprinkling of stars. The Magellanic Cloud Orion, the serpent, the centaur, Venus. Beyond, grazing the treetops, the guiding lights of the Southern Cross. It was easy to sight, having just risen. Luckily, no comet threatened the precarious harmony. Lope feared the fickleness of comets. He stretched out on the sandy shore and gazed upward, vaguely distressed by an old fear that the supreme order 
would transform into pure chaos, that all would revert to the first page of the Bible. Heavenly bodies, planets, stars in a scramble, a wild whirlwind as forecast by some bitter, alarmist Florentine astrologists, the colliding spheres, waters of the sea mixing with the winds of space, the horrifying mingling of the dead with the living. This was his fear of God, his simple fear of God, like the fear of a huge, not-so-tame bear or of some hot-headed Galician losing a game of tutte. By the hut he found Nicephoro sleeping packed in a layer of mud to shield himself from mosquitoes and chiggers. The silence was utter. By and by he heard someone lurking near the watering hole. He thought of Spinola, the Genoese, who often corrupted the deer that came to drink. Then the silence closed in again, and the only sound was the faint sighing of a newborn orchid. Then he saw, firmer now in the soft light, the shadow of the priest. Is that you? Is it? On his cassock, bloody, bloody red stains began to show, and the gruesome garret strap. No answer came. The priest must be good and dead, floating in idiotic eternity, he thought. Then he heard a groan of weariness or disgust. Is that you? Speak, come on. You're still speechless with rage because I guarded you? You once told me your idol was St. Sebastian. The priest's torn mouth was an appalling, bloody grimace. During his execution, Lope had commanded that the garret collar be fitted between his teeth to increase the suffering. It was difficult to understand why he had come. The priest had never cared for life, never even aspired to be a bishop. He must surely have told himself he had a priestly obligation to his flock. The priest was fully aware that to live was to risk hell, as life is the only seat of temptation and sin. And in fact, he feared the annoyance of insects, the bishop's prayers, the obligatory torments of Holy Week, the peno porque no muero, the quinquennial examinations in Latin, and above all, his inability to believe in God. It was considerable. But here he was, passing into form, Perhaps he was bound to Aguirre by some dark vow, some ineffable fascination, some love-hate that might reveal its meaning with the decades. Thank you. Emil Alkali <clears throat> translates from various languages, from Hebrew, from Spanish, from Ladino. He teaches at Queens College and the Graduate School of the City University. <clears throat> and his works have appeared in such journals as Grand Street, City Lights Review, Sulphur, Caliban, and The New Yorker. And recently he has translated uh, some poems by Jose Cozer, Cuban-American poet called Prochimos, Intimates. Um, <clears throat> his book, uh, After Arabs and Jews, Remaking Levantine Culture, will be coming out this year from the University of Minnesota Press. Uh, he is going to read some uh, 
translations from the Hebrew, which he will explain to you when he comes forth. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to be reading uh, some prose and some poetry from an anthology that I'm preparing which will come out as a special issue of the Literary Review next year. Um, and the reason why I'm doing an anthology was because the, the work that I found myself concentrating on the last few years is that of Jewish writers who either were born in Arab countries or whose roots are in the Arab world. And in trying to publish single works by these writers, I found a lot of difficulties and resistance, and I thought that it would be better to try to publish an anthology to familiarize people a little bit with the culture before I you know, attempt to do single works. Uh, so I'm going to read a couple of different things. Uh, in the anthology itself, there will be poems sections of novels, stories, memoirs, uh, interviews, a variety of things, kind of to give a general picture. The first piece I'm going to read um, is by a writer named Jacob Yehoshua, who, interestingly enough, is the father of his much more well-known son, A.B. Yehoshua, uh, the Israeli novelist, and whose new book, which is out this week, Mr. Mani, uh, is very much based on his father's writings. Uh, his father was a had the gifts of a historian, anthropologist, uh, folklorist, poet, and so on and so forth. And he wrote a six-volume work called Childhood in Old Jerusalem. Uh, and I'm going to read a, a little bit from that. Jacob Yoshua from Childhood in Old Jerusalem. Jews and Muslims had common courtyards, just as if we were a single family. We grew up together. Our mothers revealed everything to the Muslim women, and they, in turn, opened their hearts to our mothers. The Muslim women even learned how to speak Ladino and were adept in its sayings and proverbs. We didn't live in shelters for the needy, like the Ashkenazim, and there were no large estates separating our houses from those of the Muslims. The Muslim women used to come down to our places across the roof at dusk to spend the evening in conversation. All the kids played together, and if anyone else from the neighborhood bothered us, our Muslim friends would come to our defense. We were allies. Our mothers would nurse any Muslim children whose mothers had died or were unable to, to attend to them, just as they could care and watch over them if their mothers were busy or otherwise occupied. And the same was true the other way around. The parents of Muslim boys born after great expectation and long suffering often asked their Jewish friends to arrange for a Jew to perform their circumcision on the eighth day following Jewish and not Islamic custom. According to Islamic custom, though, a baby nursed by someone other than the mother was considered a relative. Nisim Franco, son of the sage Jacob Franco, told me the following story. Once my brother and I accompanied our father to the train station on the way to Haifa, from where he intended to go and visit the saints' tombs in Meron. As we sat in the coach, a very dignified Muslim sheikh entered, and upon seeing my father, cried out, Ya Achi, oh my brother. They grabbed each other and stood a few moments in a tight embrace. My father asked us to kiss the sheikh's hand. 
We both got up and kissed his hand, after which he blessed us. When my father saw how astonished we were at the whole thing, he turned to us and said, When I was young, we lived with the sheikh's parents in one courtyard. His mother died suddenly, and my mother nursed him until he was weaned. So we're brothers. This, by the way, is not in the very remote past. This take, took place in the mid to late 30s, this particular story. Um, I'm going to follow that with a poem from the mid-1970s uh, by a poet whose name is Erez Biton, who was born in Algeria and grew up in Morocco, um, and was one of the first people to use the subject matter of, 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 of life in, in, in the old country, um, in, in Hebrew literature, in Israeli literature. Uh, and he also began to do readings to music, which was something very new. Uh, he would read his work accompanied by, by drummers. Um, and this is called Zohra Al-Fasia's Song by Erez Biton. Singer at Mohammed V's court in Rabat, Morocco. They say when she sang, soldiers fought with knives to clear a path through the crowd, to reach the hem of her skirt, to kiss the tips of her toes to leave her a piece of silver as a sign of thanks. Zohra al-Fasia. Now you can find her in Ashkelon, Antiquities 3. By the welfare office, the smell of leftover sardine cans on a wobbly three-legged table, the stunning royal carpet stained on the Jewish agency cot, spending hours in a bathrobe in front of the mirror with cheap makeup. When she says, Mohammed sank, apple of our eyes, you don't really get it at first. Zohra Alfasia's voice is hoarse. Her heart is clear. Her eyes are full of love. Zohra Alfasia. Um, read a piece uh, from a the first part of a trilogy. Uh, by a writer whose name is Itzhak Gormejano Goran, who was born in Alexandria. Uh, and the first book of the trilogy, these are the first, it's, it's written in very short chapters. These are the first two chapters of the first book of the trilogy, which is called An Alexandrian Summer. One, from a distance of 20 years, Sporting club, the racetrack neighborhood, on the other side of the tram tracks. At the intersection of Delta Street and the Corniche stands number 24, all seven stories of it. We, we used to go up to the roof and shoot paper arrows at the ants busily rushing back and forth, as if there was some purpose to all that movement down on the sidewalk. The Arab doorman, his name was Badri, his face dark brown and parched, squints before the sun. His youngest son, Abdo, crouches next to him, helping him watch the shadows stretching over the sidewalk and the cars passing on their way to the beach. Badri and his son would warm anyone coming into the building up with an ahlan yasidi, vigilant and filled with expectation. Will they give bakshish or not? If so, they would get a bowing escort right to the very door of the elevator. If not, a hand pointing indifferently towards the musty darkness. 
The elevator is ancient, girded by black cast-iron bars with faded gold engravings eaten away by reddish rust. The door shuts with a metallic clatter and, miracle, the elevator starts going up, whispering, buzzing, laboriously dragging the loop tail that gets longer and longer as it rises. Hair-raising stories are told about power blackouts between the fourth and the, s and the fifth. Quarrels between neighbors starting in the hall intensify in the dimness of the elevator before completely dissipating outside in the subtropical sun that scorns human desire. The second floor, no further. If you weren't lazy, you could just walk up. A brass plate, and the name engraved on it is that of a Jewish family, descendants of exiles from Spain, whose family name is the name of their city of origin, with the Anno suffix. The bell rings. A dark, thin servant answers, immediately addressing you in French with a Mediterranean lilt. Oui, monsieur, qu'est-ce que vous voulez? And you stutter and ask, the boy Robert, Robbie, does he live here? The servant is surprised that a 30-year-old man is looking for a 10-year-old boy, but doesn't give his opinion as long as he's not asked. Robbie, over there. And he points toward the balcony at the far end of the apartment. Should I call him? No, no, there's no need. The young Arab looks at him with a hint of suspicion. Who are you, monsieur? And you tell him your name, Hebraicized in Israel during the 50s, when foreign-sounding names were met with revulsion. The servant naturally sees no closeness between the names. This foreign name could be Greek or Turkish or Italian or Maltese or Armenian or French or English or even American. Alexandria, after all, is the center of the world, a cosmopolitan city. You want to add, yes, I used to be Robbie, 20 years ago. I have come from a distance of 20 years. I won't bother you. I just want to see what's going on here. I won't butt in, God forbid. No one will even notice me. I only want to tell the story of one summer, a Mediterranean summer, an Alexandrian summer. Two. A family from Cairo. Wave upon wave rises and falls, carrying memories of the city. Alexandria. The story of an Alexandrian summer is not easily written. See, it is wrapped in layers of nostalgia, of forgetfulness, of generalities. And I am trying to put my finger on the objective, the distinctive. Should I tell it in the first or the third person? Should I call people by their names or perhaps just give them fictitious names and write that any resemblance, etc., is purely coincidental? Trivial details, but they do hold you back. But it is of the Hamdi Ali family that I wish to speak. What is it in essence? Look, the Hamdi Ali family is the joy of life, the unvanquishable Mediterranean edge. Yes, Mediterranean. Really? Maybe it's by right of that same Mediterranean that I sit here unraveling this tale, here in the land of Israel, bordering the shores of the Baltic Sea. Sometimes you find yourself utterly perplexed. Is Vilna the Jerusalem of Lithuania? Or is Jerusalem actually the Vilna of the land of Israel? It's because of this I wanted so much to tell the story of the Hamdi Ali family and the story of the city of Alexandria. Um, and one more piece of prose and then a couple of short poems. I think that'll, that'll do. Um, this is a piece uh, 
from a, the latest novel by a truly remarkable writer, Shimon Balas, uh, who was born in Baghdad and emigrated to Israel in 1951 and has written, I think this is his eighth novel, um, and he also writes uh, on contemporary Arabic literature. Um, this is a novel narrated by a Jew who converts to Islam and writes a history of the Jews. And uh, a number of the characters are based on historical figures. And the book opens with the narrator receiving a Medal of Honor uh, during the Iran-Iraq War from Saddam Hussein. Uh, and... To give you some idea of what I mean by meeting certain resistance and trying to contextualize this kind of literature, this writer, for instance, Shimon Balas, during the Gulf War, gave an interview in a Hebrew paper in which the headline was, uh, I am an Arab Jew. Um, this kind of thing is difficult for people to really grasp uh, unless they're very familiar with, with, with the context. And further on, he went on to say, simply because I'm Israeli or I'm Jewish has nothing to do with the fact that I am an Arab and my culture is Arabic, even though I write in Hebrew. Um, so this is, a, this is quite a remarkable novel, actually. Uh, it's called The Other, Shimon Balas. And the narrator is old, and he's trying to recollect all these details of, of his life um, and, and his friendships with the two other characters. I'm making every effort to tell of things as they happen, but memory betrays me. Many events seem detached from the context of that time, leaving me with disturbing question marks. 1935 and 1936 were decisive years in my life, and the dispute with Assad over my article was only a way station on the route that led to the break between us. I met with him often. I also met with Qasim at the offices of Arrushd and at the cafes, but I still couldn't find something to grasp onto in their world. Qasim galloped along the political trail while Assad seemed to me like someone sitting by the window, observing the movement on the street. He was a dreamer, a romantic who, were it not for his gentle manner and the love he had for others, could have stayed by the window his whole life, borne over the tumult, climbing the skies of poetry. But Assad didn't possess the right measure of selfishness needed by an artist. He accustomed himself to abrogating his own wishes to that of the community, that same tribal collective that confined him and led him to acts that he couldn't have been reconciled with. In this, he wasn't much different from most of the Jews of his standing. As for myself, I hardly met with Jews, and I stopped going to the Al-Zawara club even before Jane left. I felt more and more that I had nothing in common with him, but I, I was always happy to meet Assad. He never failed to distinguish himself. It was just that I found myself at a crossroads then, and I had to decide which way I was heading. More than 50 years. Is it possible to get all the details right after such a long time? The brain is already weary, knuckling under the weight of so many memories. Now I'm trying to remember whether Assad's wedding was before Jane left or afterwards, and I simply can't reach a decision. I remember very well that I went to the wedding alone, and I regretted that Jane wasn't with me to see such a magnificent wedding. The guests filled the hall of the synagogue as well as the big courtyard adjacent to it. A military band played the wedding march to the jubilant sounds of the women ululating and the shower of candy raining down over our heads. 
The arrival of the military band was a surprise, not only to the guests, but to Assad himself, who seemed quite moved by the official gesture according, accorded him. I remember describing every detail of the wedding to Jane, but I am simply unable to remember whether I did it in Baghdad or in New Orleans. Gaps along the course of events, like fragmented negatives of snapshots. You want to tell things in order, and you can't. What came first with Assad, the Jew or the Iraqi? It seems to me, were he asked such a question, that he would answer, both are first. I believe him, because an answer like that unearths the dual nature of his personality, that same duality he bore with him his whole life, only to be continually disappointed. A person cannot be equally divided between two contradictory identities. And if that's what happened, doesn't it stand to reason that when it came to a test, he would lose his ability to decide and find himself doing things his heart couldn't be at peace with? Wasn't it like that when he found himself pressured time and again to declare his loyalty to Iraq? What tipped the scales here, the Jew in him or the Iraqi? Neither. His duality tipped the scales. His lack of decision decided. I loved Assad, and I'm making every effort to portray him in the fullness of his stature. No matter how strong my desire that what I write about him will once be read, there isn't a chance that will happen. These pages will remain buried in a drawer for a long time to come. I'm trying to write the truth, and it's all the same to me whether I present myself in a good light here in a good light here and there. It's not the reader's sympathy I'm asking for, and besides, what good will such sympathy do me after I'm dead? There is one thing I want to say to Assad. Assad, my friend, despite everything, despite the resentment you kept for me in your heart, my feelings for you haven't changed. And even now that you are settled in the state of the Jews, after the circumstances and not you decided your fate, I say to you in all sincerity that I still honor you. What's time-wise? Hmm? Uh, okay, if the time is all right, I'm going to do a few poems. Um, uh, two poems by one of the youngest po poets to be born in the old world, uh, Rani Somek, who was born in Baghdad in 1951, uh, came to Tel Aviv as a, as a young child. Um, these poems also revolve around music um, and mention very famous Arab singers who some of you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, the first poem is called Embroidered Rag, poem on Um Kaltum. She had a black evening gown on, and her voice hammered steel nails into the elbow leaning on the table in the cafe on Struma Square. My eyes have gotten used to seeing you, and if you don't come one day, I'll blot that day from my life. I came with a sponge to rub out a huge eagle drawn in chalk on the edge of a cloud, an embroidered rag that years later the cook at the base at Bear Ora hooked to his belt loop, fluttered under its wings. I asked him for a couple of potatoes, and on the cassette player her gown darkened again. He shut his eyes to the steaming lunch and kept peeling potatoes. Who's that singing, I started. Um Kaltum? He nodded. For all he cared, I could have cleaned out the whole kitchen. Jasmine, poem on sandpaper. 
Firuz raises her lips to heaven to let jasmine rain down on those who once met without knowing they were in love. I'm listening to her in Muhammad's Fiat at noon on Ibn Gvirol Street, a Lebanese singer playing in an Italian car that belongs to an Arab poet from Baqa al-Garabiya on a street named after a Hebrew poet who lived in Spain. And the jasmine? If it falls from the sky at the end of days, it'll stay green for just a second at the next light. Um, still? Okay. Okay, this is a, a poem, a little bit longer, but I'll, I'll go for it. Um, uh, it's written by a poet uh, born in Morocco, uh, Sami Shalom Shitrit, and it's called Hey Jeep, Hey Jeep. Um, and I think it is the strongest poem that has come out of uh, an Israeli response to, to the Palestinian uprising. Um, and it comes in 29 very short paragraphs. I won't read the numbers. I'll read straight through. The words, hey, Jeep, are from a very popular heroic song of the 1948 period, um, and those words are interspersed throughout the poem. Hey, Jeep, hey, Jeep. Eight kids in an army Jeep, eight soldiers, one major, eight kids and one minor, Hey Jeep, hey Jeep. And his son Ishmael was 13 years old at the cutting of his uncircumcised flesh. And eight of his sons in the army Jeep, and his son cries to the Lord, but no one hears. And behold, his father running, run, Muhammad, run, your son's spirit is coming towards you. Lord, Lord, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, bore unto Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael, by their names according to their generations, the firstborn of Ishmael, Nebaiot, and Kedar, and Abdiel, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, Hadad, and Teman, Yetur, Nafish, and Kedma, and Muhammad, Said, Karada, and Said Karada, whose years numbered 13 at his death. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Esau, and Jacob, and Jacob begot the 12 tribes and eight soldiers in an army jeep. One has officer's stripes on his shoulder, a Hebrew officer to the kingdom of Israel, maybe a bleeding heart liberal, or a down and out reactionary, Hey, Jeep, hey, Jeep, what a night it is. Maybe his name's Itzik, and the seven under him, one's an eagle eye, another's bound to ritual, the third has his feet on the ground, the fourth's got his head in the clouds, the fifth's got to do it all, the sixth replies stoically, the seventh can't wait for liberty. And there are dovish intellectuals amongst them, and there are militant hawks amongst them, and God is there amongst them, and an officer is there amongst them. Soon there's neither affection nor innocence. Black combat boots on their feet that oppress the poor and crush the destitute. Subject displayed the following signs. Pallor bleeding from the nose and left ear. Internal hemorrhaging in the vicinity of the left temple. Compound fractures resulting from a blow, not a projectile, on the left temple. Break in the left knee. 
He was 13 the day of his murder. 13, the age of obligation. Theater of the struggle, as one they arose and came from the combines and the collective farms, from the shareholders' settlements and their surroundings, from the towns and from the cities. Take her to the left a bit, take her to the right. And the boy cried to his father, Father, I'm choking. Eight pairs of heavy-duty combat boots, eight outstretched pairs, and there were white amongst them, and there were black amongst them. Hey, Jeep, hey, Jeep. Eight soldiers, one a Hebrew major, eight soldiers and one Arab minor. Hey, everyone agrees, with a Jeep, the only thing you need is speed. They finally pitched him from the fleeting coach, cast their spirit to the blinding night. Like the wind up in the sky will fly right on by. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 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 But thou shalt love thy neighbor as So now that shows that we have high quality poetry here. <coughs> Janine Blackman was educated at Columbia and NYU and has taught at several universities in Japan and done translation on various uh, publications there and uh, work of her own in uh, studying Japanese literature. She also was the recipient of a uh, Fulbright Hayes Fellowship for this uh, amazingly far-reaching work in Japanese literature. I will let her tell us what she's going to read tonight. from the work of Yosano Akiko. Yosano is her last name and Akiko is her first. And that's the way we do it in Japanese. I don't reverse it. Uh, she lived from 1878 to 1942 and she's considered uh, the most important female poet of the modern period. Um, in fact, she's the only female among the important poets of the modern period. She wrote, um, her complete works are 20 volumes, which is large by Japanese standards. And they're actually not complete because she wrote so much that it's impossible to collect it. She wrote a lot in newspapers and other periodicals. Um, the form that she's most famous for is the tanka, which is one of the classical forms of Japanese poetry. It's 31 syllables arranged as 57577. She wrote over 50,000 tanka. Um, and the reason she wrote so many is th that when she thought something, she wrote it down. And there was really no division to her between poetic speech and speech. 
In fact, she was a taciturn person in real life, and I think a lot of the time she was writing down what she was thinking instead of saying it. Um, but she also wrote about 2,000 modern-style poems. Um, modern-style poem is a kind of catch-all term that we use in Japanese studies to mean everything that's not tanka or haiku. Uh, and usually, male critics tend to say her poems aren't interesting, her modern-style poems aren't interesting. Um, in my experience, this is because a lot of them are about female experience. Um, I admit to being biased. Uh, however, anyway, I find them very interesting, and that's what I'm going to read from tonight. Um, most of the poems that I'll be reading date from about 1911 or 1912. Uh, the dominant color in Akiko's modern style poems is red. She uses it as a symbol for passion, love, and life. Um, I'm sorry, that was in the wrong place. X that comment for a while. <laughs> I'm going to read something else. Uh, this is, I'm going to read some poems that deal with her European trip. She took one trip, she took two trips abroad in her life. One was to Europe, it lasted six months, and the other was to um, Manchukuo, the, when Manchuria was a puppet kingdom of Japan. And that was in the 1930s. Uh, the trip to Europe is extremely interesting in many ways. Uh, she was, before she left, her husband, Hiroshi, left, and she went through a very difficult emotional time, wanting to join him, um, and at the same time wanting to be with their children, of whom they then had seven. She ultimately had 13 children, and incidentally supported her entire family single-handedly through her writing. Uh, this poem, the first poem I'm going to read, she wrote in 1912, um, shortly after her husband had gone abroad and while she was missing him in a kind of longing way, not yet in the very intense depression that she later felt. It's untitled. A dim, it's not going to work, oh well. A dim light, sorry. A dim light, like dusk, passes between branches in the winter garden, slides over the purple velvet and its exotic design. In this thin light, like twilight, I lean against the purple velvet curtain and light surrounds my skin, becoming dreams. In this faint light, like early evening, I sit on one hip, fresh from a morning bath, hand against my neck, and think of you. The next poem is from, is, is from slightly later, shortly before she joined her husband in Europe, and at that time her feelings were more intense. Uh, this too is untitled. I'm sorry, it is titled. It's called Days I Weep. Watakushi ga nakuhi. Twilight, dawn, there is no fixed time, I weep. Suddenly, the opal-colored sky will look like a swirling ocean, and there, as if alive, I see the aged Sappho, white hands struggling in the waves, Sappho, her young heart unable to die, and I weep with her. Or it is noon when the horsefly buzzes, and amid the scent of golden forsythia and amsonia blossoms of silver and jade, 
The young Kichisa releases a brief warm sigh as my fingers play with his hair and like a gentle breeze, I'm weeping. Kichisa is the hero of a kabuki play. Um, and just to show you that Akiko wasn't completely taken in by her own tears, <laughs> I read a brief poem that she wrote in 1929. It's called Eyelids. Eyelids, louvred windows, how easily you open and shut. You let me look intently within. I only regret that sometimes you are moistened by a storm of tears. That's from a series called Small Scenes in the Mirror, which obviously are little portraits of herself. Um, many of Akiko's modern style poems are quasi-philosophical meditations on the nature of the self and of poetry. Um, the following two poems exemplify this. The first is called Dialogue with Myself, and it was written in 1914. What is the I, I ask, and suddenly everything retreats, leaving only a vacant hush. That's fine. If there's no answer from outside, I'll turn in to myself. What is the I, I ask again, and four women appear. They call themselves love, hate, joy, anger. Then two men appear. They call themselves wisdom and belief. I gaze at them for a while, then murmur, phantoms of my heart, you are figments from the world and other people reflected in me. What I want to know is my unfettered, unfabricated, unmixed, unbent, original natal self, get out. With one voice they weep, fume, curse, but leave. Now I look at myself with detachment and see clearly. What is the I? There can be no reply because it is mute flesh that only knows the dance. Um, the next poem is about making poetry. It's called How I Make Poems, and it was written in 1917. How I make poems. I fix my gaze. I concentrate my love. On what? I embrace with all my might. Embrace what? Truth. Where is truth? Right here. Always with me. Where my eyes look, where my heart loves, within my two hands. Truth, a gem-like mermaid, leaps and jumps, dances about in my hands, wet from my joyful tears. Doubters, come. The mermaid in my hands has just emerged from nature's sea, and each scale glistens like a rose on pure alabaster. Then there are more personal and concrete reflections on herself. The following three poems come under that class. This is called From an Old Nest. Storm in the sky, don't call me. Tilting mountains, destroying fields. Having no fixed home would be hard for me, an earth dweller. Fragrance of the wildflowers, don't call me. 
If I became a flower's scent, I would inundate each instant and then disappear without a trace. Birds in the trees don't call to me. You have wings and can play among the branches, singing to the flowers as you go. Don't call to me anything. Murmuring the same thing over and over in a weak voice, I have come to rest in the nest of first love. This is from 1923, when Akiko was 45. It's untitled. In my heart, there is still a girl's kimono, and girl's bangs cover my forehead. But who sees, who knows? In my heart, there are still dreams. And this even briefer poem is called Critics. They set a price on me, those people. Yes, I can be bought, if, that is, the sun has a price. Um, this next poem is part of Akiko's reaction to Nietzsche, who was read quite intensely in the 20s in Japan. Akiko was very shocked when she read Thus Spake Zarathustra. Um, and this is her five-line response, which incidentally has been taken up by Japanese feminists to some extent after languishing in total obscurity for many years. Don't forget the whip, said Zarathustra. Women are cows and sheep. Then let me add, release them into the fields. Um, Akiko wrote, and no one is quite sure why she got away with it, um, many political poems, um, although she stopped doing it shortly before World War II. This poem written in 1912 fits in pretty well with Japan bashing at the present, but you have to think of it in context, of course. She was not an anti-Japanese leftist by any means. She was a fervent patriot, but she did have enough liberal opinions that she could write a poem like this, which is called A Certain Country. A Certain Country, of course, being Japan. A country that rejoices at formal outward propriety but indulges in imprudent caprice. A country without the patience of the Chinese but with a shallow egocentricity. A country without the wealth of America but that imitates America anyway. A country where mistrust and trembling terror mingle. A country where the men all hunched over become fatalists. A country of good fortune and peace. May it live a hundred million years. Um, now I'm moving back to, just for a moment, uh, to Akiko's trip to Europe. This poem was written shortly after she arrived in France, um, and it's called The Peony. She loved French peonies, by the way, which she called coquelicots. Um, and this is just one poem exemplifying that. 
French peonies bloom with huge flowers, bright red. I slept with one beside my pillow and dreamt my tangled hair became a flame that consumed me. Um, at some point in her work, the imagery associated with the color red joins with imagery of the sun. I've already read one poem in which she refers to herself, ironically, as the sun. But the identification was actually a persistent theme. And it's connected partly um, to the woman's, the famous woman's magazine called Seto, or Blue Stocking, whose manifesto in its first issue began with the famous sentence by Hiratsukar Aicho, in the beginning, woman was the sun. Um, and this, I think, affected Akiko's poetry from that time on quite strongly. She was one of the, I suppose you would call it, board of trustees, a board of advisors for blue stocking. Uh, anyway, at some point, this red imagery begins to mingle with imagery of the sun in a kind of original way, uh, as in the next poem I'm going to read, which is a poem of early middle age. It's called The Heart of a 30-ish Woman. Sanjuona no kokoro. The heart of a 30-ish woman is a shadowless, smokeless, soundless ball of fire, a crimson sun set against the evening sky, unmoving, burning, burning, burning. The last poem I'm going to read by Akiko, and I'm going to read one more after that by somebody else, is one of her several poems about birth. Akiko was the first Japanese poet, and I think one of the first poets in the world, um, to write about birth at length in poetry. She has an entire tanka sequence about giving birth to a set of twins, one of whom died. and. Um, another poem about giving birth to a different child, and several others, many others, actually, scattered about. This particular poem, um, which is called Dawn in the Maternity Room, or Ubuya no Yoake, uh, fuses imagery of birth, death, and the sun. She persistently sees birth as death and rebirth, and therefore it links to her idea of the sun. Um, it was written when she was 36, in 1914, shortly after the eighth time she gave birth. Um, at that time, she gave birth to her ninth child, because she had had twins once. And having returned from France just a few years before, she called the child by a French name, Hélène. The child before this was the one born, was the first child born after she had returned from France, and he was named after Rodin. He was named Auguste, although he didn't like the name, and he later changed it to Iku. But um, Rodin was the godfather. Uh, he had met Akiko and her husband in France, and they had a very warm relationship. Uh, anyway, this is called Dawn in the Maternity Room. Beyond the window pane, like a pale cocoon, the dawn. Now something crawls up the wall without a sound, trailing a faint thread of coral light, it seems. The early winter sun, a fragile butterfly, has emerged. In this room are these, myself a woman, a pallid woman eight times escaped to return from death. 
my daughter Helen, a wild camellia's firm bud in her fifth day of life, a vase of roses, and the pale peach-colored butterfly sun shy as first love, such a silent pristine dawn. How I missed you, precious sun. I lie here now exhausted like a soldier wounded in battle, but my new joy is like sun worship. Accept my outstretched hands, O sun, empress of the dawn. You who know both night and winter have also known death for millions of years again and again and always return to life. What heroic power is in that celestial fire? I will follow you. I have returned alive only eight times, a mere eight times come through the screams, the blood, death's darkness. Um, these are from the biography of Yosano Akiko that I'm writing now um, under a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. But I also have in the works um, a book of translations by the Japanese poet Makoto Oka. His name is really Oka Makoto, but he likes it to be reversed, so it's Western style, and his first name is Makoto. He happens to be the president of Japan Pen, so I thought it would be nice to read something by him as a gesture across the sea. Uh, this particular poem is, well, it's interesting because this is the opening lines of Olka's adaptation of Euripides' The Trojan Women, which means it's been translated from Greek into English. I assume he read it in English. Perhaps he also read it in Greek. Um, well, at least it's, let me put it this way. It's been translated from Greek to Japanese, and now it's being translated into English. And there may be something between the Greek and the Japanese that I don't know about. So it's a kind of interesting circle. Um, in Japanese translation, or Oka's adaptation of someone else's Japanese translation, to be more accurate, it was performed um, to great success by the Waseda Shogekijo Theater of uh, Suzuki Tadashi, which has come to New York. In fact, I think The Trojan Woman was done in New York, if I'm not mistaken. Um, anyway, these are the opening lines. It's called Incantation. Dead souls live in these arid stones and in the roots of distant trees. If colors be the color of dawn, the lustrous pearl of spilt tears. Dead souls live simultaneously on all the thousand peaks of this planet with its two frozen poles. If feet be a whirlwind of hyenas, ostriches, ostriches attacking cobras. Dead souls depart and live in the still dark pools at the far limits of light. If hands be the maelstrom's oceans breathe, the nimbleness of a girl's fingers stitching. Dead souls live, leaving no footprints behind, following the pure sky path, reclining on its golden waves. If song be the tune of an army traveling forever, love songs, the coolness of the earthworm's eternal song. 
dead souls, forsake us who live in swamps shut off from the sun, become fruit that stings the tongue, return to life, and if you are breath, then be the world's first and last, a woman's delicate sigh, the holy fire of the demon air, and return to life, return to life, return to life, dead souls. Thank you. Ginsburg is an old uh, friend of Penn, served on the Penn Translation Committee, and uh, as I was telling her earlier this, this evening, now she has a country since she was born in what is now Belarus, and has done uh, translation from the Russian and the Yiddish, holding forth in three languages, of course, including English. We know her work best as a translator of Dostoevsky, Notes from Underground, but perhaps more famous is the, uh, she, I would say, is the one who introduced us to the work of Bulgakov in this country. Lately, she has done uh, two novellas, Lieutenant Kiji and uh, Young Vitu Shishnikov by Yuri Tinyanov. And along with this, we must remember that she is also has also done more than 25 children's books, which I think is an important uh, part of translation, too. So with further ado, I give you Mary Ginsburg. to be the last. Anyway, here it is. <laughs> I want to read two pieces by Alexei Remizov one of the major seminal figures in Russian literature of the early 20th century, a master stylist, a man of marvelous prismatic vision, and a great artificer, utterly unique, both idiosyncratic and universal, and an artist of absolute integrity. Remizov wrote novels, short stories, plays, dream books, and during his years in France, after leaving Russia in 1921, remarkable autobiographical books. He was a lifelong student of old religious writings, obscure ancient texts of old believers and other sects, lives of saints and apocrypha. He had a wide and profound knowledge of Slavic and other folklore, going back into its pagan origins. 
He collected these and wrote his own versions and variations on them. He also studied the folk speech of far-flung regions of Russia. Out of all this, he created a style, a manner that was unexpectedly innovative. He shattered the conventions of formal prose. His works are oral rather than written literature, moving with the varied music of speech, with varied structures, patterns, rhythms, and tonalities. He influenced many of the most important writers of the period. <clears throat> Thank you. Zamyatin, Zoshinka, Pilnyak, Alesha, and others, teaching them to breathe and speak in new ways. <clears throat> I will read first The Angel of Perdition from his book of Apocrypha, which he called Stella Maria Maris. Uh, it is a, uh, a piece uh, on a New Testament theme. After he had risen from the dead, putting off the body of flesh, Christ appeared before his disciples. The apostles Peter, Andrew, John, and Bartholomew were with, <clears throat> with the mother of God, comforting her. And when they were all assembled together, Christ stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Ask me, and I shall teach you. Seven days will pass, and I shall ascend to my father. And no one dared to ask. And they followed him meekly in his divine steps to the Mount of Olives. On the way, the apostle Peter spoke to the mother of God. Let her beg her son, that the Lord reveal to them all that is in heaven. But the mother of God would not question and they followed Christ in silence. When they, had when they had ascended the Mount of Olives and sat together, Christ in the midst of them, Bartholomew spoke to Christ, Lord, show us the devil that we shall see what he is and what his works are. He had no shame of thee. He nailed thee to the cross. O oh, brave heart, said Christ, Thou mayest not behold him. Bartholomew fell at the feet of the Savior, pleading, unquenchable lamp, everlasting light of salvation. Thou didst come into the world at the word of thy father. Thou hast done thy work, turned Adam's sorrow to rejoicing, Eve's sadness to joy. Do this thing. And the Lord said to, Bart to Bartholomew, it is thy wish to see the devil, thou shalt see him. But I tell thee, thou and the apostles and the mother of God shall fall down as dead. And all of them beseeched, Lord, do this thing, Lord, show him. And at the word of the Lord, angels appeared from the west. They raised up the earth like a scroll and an abyss opened up, the pit of perdition. And forbidding the neither angels, Christ commanded Michael to sound his trumpet. And the captain of the armies of heaven sounded his trumpet. And in that hour, the angel of perdition, Sataniel, was brought forth out of the abyss. 
free as the golden eye, elder of the heavenly host, cast down for pride, where is thy freedom? Where the crown of power, thy heavenly throne? 660 angels held him, the harbinger of evil, creator of the dream, bound in fiery chains, and his height was 600 cubits, his face lightning, his hair arrows, his, lid, his lids a wild boar, his right eye the morning star, his left eye a lion, and the mouth a chasm, and the fingers sights, the wings burning purple, the vestment blood, and on his face the writing of the enemy, the seal of perdition. And Satan proclaimed, I am the Lord God. And there was a great quake. The earth shook, and in dread, the apostles and the mother of God fell prostrate on the ground. Now a piece based on pagan Slavic lore, the Vedagons. Vedagons are part pagan spirits or creatures assigned to guard animals and also some men, the lucky ones, singers of songs and tellers of tales. Those who were, as the Russians put it, born in a shirt. Born in a shirt is an English born in a call, which seems to be a, in Russia a token of luck. This piece is from Remizov's book called Possible, roughly following the sun or sunrise. It is a book of seasons, and the Vergons is a part of the autumnal circle. The Vergons. The rivers turned into shallow mud. The plowed furrows in the field have gone to grass. The meadow has been mowed, the grain is gathered, the fall, the fall sowing is over, the lingam berries gone, and the wind has torn the leaves of the trees. It carried them fluttering through the air, dried them out, and rolled them rustling away from the orphaned trees. The lake is filled with leaves. The golden curly wood turned redder, rustier with each morning frost thinned out with each sunny day. Gossamer floated through the wood, rose clinging to the treetops, and rolling down the branches slipped around the desolate trees. In the mornings at dawn, the gossamer, chilled in the night, grew ever lighter and more transparent, curling its threads, it swayed in abandoned, torn nests. The rainy, Autumn has come riding on a piebald mare. The last bright days are gone. The rainy, drowsy autumn. The bees have gone to sleep in their lairs. The shaggy ones are warm. To them, it is still summer. The wind plays in the fields and woods, sweeps rushing through the open space, and the vergons have risen by the lairs, they stand and watch over the sleeping beasts. Every beast has its guardian, Vergon, 
but they get bored watching over the layers in the rain, bored and chilled. For want of something better to do, they start up fights among themselves, sometimes unto death. Trouble, who'll submit and own himself beaten, and so a Vedagon will end his days, and the Vedagon's beast will end his in his sleep. Many a beast will perish in the autumn season, silently unheard. The wind is muted, the nights grow longer, early frost. The lucky ones who were born in a shirt, they also have their vergons like the beasts. And now, lucky one, you've gone to sleep, and your vergon has stolen out like a mouse and wanders through the world. What places won't he visit? What mountains? What stars? He'll wander to his heart's content and take a look at everything and then return to you. And you will waken in the morning happy after your fine spun dream. A storyteller, you'll compose a tale. A singer, you will sing a song. But it is all from Vedagon. It's he who told you, who sang to you. The tale, the song, lucky one, born in a shirt, take heed. For if you sleep, your dream takes you too far. Your dates are numbered. The Vergons are fighters. They'll meet and tease and get into a brawl. And then before you know it, one is gone, has given up the ghost. And you, lucky one, teller of tales, singer of songs, will not wake you will end your days in your sleep. Many a lucky one dies in the autumn season, silently, unheard. And now I want to, I want to read something that I was led to by translation, and that's a children's book. Um, <clears throat> Uh, my children's books are usually based on Russian themes and Russian materials. And um, this is called Across the Stream, with marvelous pictures by, with a, by a marvelous illustrator, Nancy Tafuri. Uh, I read, it started with my reading a verse by one of the wonderful Russian absurdist poets who abounded in the 20s, in the 1920s in Russia. Uh, his name was Daniel Harms, and he, of course, was uh, exterminated. But this verse just enchanted me. Roughly translated, it is, they, in a trice, they crossed the stream. A chick on a duckling, a chick on a duckling, a chick on a duckling, and a hen on a duck. Well, I fell in love with it, and I wanted to do something. I wanted to do something with it. And I walked around all day long, repeating it in Russian, of course. The Russian is very musical. Shall I say it in Russian? And, and uh, I kept repeating it and repeating it, and suddenly something took over, and this happened. 
I, I don't think you could see from here. You can a little bit. A hen and three chicks had a bad dream. They ran and came to a deep, wide stream. The hen said, cluck, we are in luck. I see three ducklings and a duck. Here are the three ducklings in the book. The duck was kind. She didn't mind. She said, quack, get on my back. <laughs> they were in luck. They crossed the stream. A chick and a duckling, a chick and a duckling, a chick and a duckling, and the hen on the duck. And what became of the bad dream? It was left on the other side of the stream. Thank you. I've been working on a uh, rather unusual novel that I discovered that somebody sent me, a former student of mine who came from the same village in the Azores as the author. And we don't hear much about the Azores in literature, although it does have a rather, uh, the islands have a rather rich history in Portuguese literature. Several of their more famous writers have come out of that situation. As soon as I came to a part in the novel where he mentioned dinosaur eggs in a stream as the village was being founded, I said, oh, you've got another Macondo here. You've got another Garcia Marquez. And um, I've been working on this novel, trying to see if we can find a publisher for it. The author is Jean de Melo, and the title of the book, which also fascinated me immediately, is a little reversal of the uh, New Testament phrase, which is... Uh, O meu, o meu uh, uh, mundo não é deste reino. My world is not of this kingdom, which has some political connotations in it as well. The, I'll read some uh, pages from chapter 11, which deals with this figure, strange uh, messianic figure called João Lázaro. And true to his name, he they thought he was dead, but he's come back to the village. In this, uh, I didn't bother to translate some of the surnames of the people from the Portuguese because they have meaning and perhaps it would have been too much. For example, the priest is uh, Father Governo, government. But I left it, uh, in Portuguese it doesn't sound too bad, Father Governo. In English, Father Government uh, <laughs> sounds a little strange. The, he leads into his uh, chapters by uh, a small paragraph in uh, uppercase, then goes on with it. When Jean Lazaro reappeared in the parish, despair was already a great black bird hanging with open wings in the middle of the rain. 
and his luciferine gaze stopped to contemplate death from as close as a human creature could without the risk of being struck down by it. The same arid, blonde fever was burning in him with uncommon intensity on that day, and his white voice had grown somewhat hoarse from weeping. That was also unusual in his life without memory, where he had always felt an almost fantastic clarity as visible as illuminated crystal. His sumptuous red beard, woven out of many threads and skeins, in the midst of which two eyes of earth blue glowed, his feet calloused and curved, the same as his ancient sacred nails, his whole bird-man being with a hooked, bone-round nose, suddenly filled with that despair because the plague had already brought death to a few children and was secretly continuing his visitation from house to house. It had already been seen, according to what they said, sitting on the bed of a boy three years old who was reciting psalms from the Bible. And it was a woman without a face who expressed herself only with gestures and spread a sulfurous breath over every object she touched. Others swore that his own smell was sulfurous and scorched the air, perhaps forever. Jean Lazaro went back to begging cracklings and crusts with his innocent white voice out of paradise, crying in the wilderness and touched with pity to the point of weeping over the misery of the women and the suffering of the children. As they had neither cracklings nor crusts to give him, they began to offer him white and black coins, but Jean Lazaro would only accept the dark money since it was of secondary value. His poor man's pouch was growing empty, and hunger soon obliged him to eat roots and wild mulberries. He wandered about, indifferent to the rain and the lightning, and began to render small domestic services and to take the place of men who were sick or even dead. In payment, they would give him a bowl of barley or pumpkin soup, and he would sip it without relish, as if concentrating on the act of feeding. His inexhaustive energy of a raw-boned, obstinate old man led him to grab his axe and chop piles of tree stumps without the slightest drop of sweat. He persisted until he brought all other chores upon himself, and he did it with such a feeling of service and delivery that soon after cutting firewood, he would clean cattle sheds and pigsties, and even after that repair broken fences, huts knocked down by the wind, and plug drains, and he would whitewash buildings and walls, re-roof houses, seal up cracked fireplaces, and proceed on to a whole endless series of other services. Sometimes people had to invent senseless tasks, such as arranging rows of sacks that were in perfect order, sweeping the street, or watering plants already drenched, because Jean Lazaro would only desist when the sun went down, considering his work at an end then. No one ever managed to understand a single word from his mouth. But when they gave him instructions in Portuguese, they would explain what had to be done first, detailing everything that was needed. And he showed signs of a perfect understanding of the language. Nevertheless, it was impossible to converse with him, since his speech consisted only of bird whistles and great open and monotonous syllables. They tried to pay him with bright silver money, pork or, and chicken meat, or simply a few ears of corn, a quart of beans, eggs, and other items of food. But Jean Lazaro persisted in his immediate refusal and would accept only dark coins, cracklings, and crusts. If there was none of that, he would show no signs of annoyance, whatever, and go on his way. The days went on like that, and the rain kept up, furrowing the ground, knocking down walls, and opening ditches and fields to be plowed. 
The roads were practically impassable because of washouts and the yellow water that swirled along the streets in a flood until it split into successive branches. In a short time, Ashadinha, that's the name of the town, had withdrawn into its original egg, shutting itself up inside its houses to let the downpour fulfill the prophecy of biblical waters. At the same time, the hateful fevers of the plague with its vomiting and agony, its delirium, headaches, and nausea was leaving people bilious and with tongues the color of brimstone, possessed with a sinful thirst, unable to urinate, and with bodies covered with sores. They would die sometimes in the middle of a gesture or a step as they were getting out of bed. They would die with their arms flexed and their legs stiff and would blink convulsively as if they had received an arrow in their heart. Death took on all those sudden forms brought on by thirst and unusual suffocation. And people's afflicted mouths would open to give passage to a tongue that was burning like a lighted match. Jean Lazare went about indifferent to such family tragedies, not hearing the wailing, the cutting shrieks of mothers over the beds of their children, in short, spaced sobs of men without wives, the moaning of children and animals as rats devoured each other and would sometimes burst from drinking rainwater. Jerome Lazaro didn't even see the funeral processions going by almost continuously in the rain, with the priest sheltering himself under a kind of bishop's canopy. And he was even far removed from the meaning of those pine boxes on top of ox carts. By then they'd completely forgotten his miraculous blue eyes and the old effect his look had on dogs, bulls, and stones, his unexpected meekness, and because of that, he'd been gradually assuming his status of a beggar once again. Quite simply, he'd stopped wandering around the island in order to be useful during the misfortune of death. And once more, boys turned to throwing stones at him and sicking dogs on him, thinking that Jean Lazaro's arrival had coincided with the outbreak of the plague and the rain that had gone on for 99 days without cease. They ended up considering him an idiot because it had never been possible to glimpse any indication of wisdom in him. On the contrary, everything led to their treating him with scorn, allowing that only a person of weak intelligence would reject silver coins and jealously guard dark money. Jean Lazaro averred, furthermore, that he was a child of a tender age, saying so with a gesture of his fingers. When a boy asked him how old he was, he showed him two fingers and he was rather annoyed at the laughter his gesture had brought on in the onlookers. And when asked where he'd been born and where he came from, he turned his back and went on, went off up the street, murmuring rude things in his strange language. Then the boys took on courage and went after him. They began by pulling his hair. Then they tore his jacket, and one of them showed him his erect penis, saying he was going to stick it up his anus. It was then that his fearsome wrath made use of his acacia staff, and he swung it about with satanic energy, capable of smashing the first head it hit. The boys swore afterwards that his eyes had grown in an inconceivable way, and that serpents with forked tongues were coiled in his eyeballs, because the gleam of those eyes was liquid metal again, exactly like that of snakes and the poisonous bite of their saliva. One day somebody noted a startling circumstance. The plague was disappearing, and what was even more noteworthy, it was doing so in houses where Jean Lazaro had gone to lend his services, where it ceased to torment people and animals. The sick people would suddenly awaken from their larval sleep 
as white and transparent as wax from being unwittingly in the shadow of death. And they would immediately arise from their beds and look around, all flustered, scarcely believing what was happening to them. Children of a tender age, in turn, with their heavy purple lashes, began to stretch and immediately sought their mother's breasts, ending in that way their mortal duel with the darkness. The ones who had begun to put the facts together and jot them down in his notebooks was Kadechi the healer, whom the plague had already deprived of a long list of patients. The man had embarked on a stubborn marathon against death. He tried to invent a chemical product based on multiple mineral vegetable essences, first by cooking, then distilling off a syrup, and finally using an alembic to clarify the product of the mixed herbs, the result of numerous and patient experiments in alchemy. Everything had been in vain, however. If he did manage to staunch the diarrhea, he couldn't suppress the fever or hydrate the body. If he eliminated the high fever, then the diarrhea would gush and the thirst would become even more devouring. And death was only inconvenienced in his passage, but not abolished from the house, from the bosom of families. Having lost heart, confessing his impotence, he went back to consulting the stars, hoping to attain through astrological means what he hadn't produced in other ways with the slightest practical effect. One night he stopped. There were phenomena on this earth that were strictly within God's competence and not that, that of men or even the stars. He tried to pray, but he didn't know how. If God did exist, it would have to be the same for good as for evil. Therefore, prayers could go fuck. Wasn't it in God's purview then for him to act directly? What was the use of praying? Here in the world, among the tiny little gods of earth, help had been invented out of selfishness, which was forbidden to God, because God was a winged being who flew above all objects and obstacles. He could very well dispense with listening to pleas for help. Kadechi jugged the rigorous inscription of his motto to be useless, and he turned it toward the wall. Then with the same impulse, he turned all the other inscriptions around, from the one that said, the sea is white, to the other one, the formidable phrase of Barbaro the Pilgrim, then isn't white the most ancient color in the world? And successively in that way, until his consultation room had the look of Lent about it, as when saints are forbidden to observe the world. Then he sat down in his chair in a spell of discouragement and tried to doze. But seeing Jean Lazaro pass on his way back to his animal lair at the extreme northern end of the parish, he leaped up and remembered that it was Saturday the day when that soul there was accustomed to flit casually from house to house asking for cracklings and crusts. He then decided to follow his tracks and taking his hat, went walking behind him, always at a distance. Juan Lazaro didn't walk. It was a kind of floating, like a dazed bird looking for its nest to sleep in. He felt a vague fascination with the tiny little steps he took and the way he would rise up at times above the walls along the street. I'll stop there. You can, I think, get an idea of the, uh, from that of the characters dealing with that are larger than life, characters who are sort of caricatures. There are others. There you have the healer. We have the, uh, the pilgrim who's come back from the dead. We have the priest who is very interesting. And then there is a mayor who is a big brute of a man who uh, has gained his office simply by physical power until finally the whole village has to rise up against him with the help of his twin brother who 
has returned from God knows where overseas. But I think that uh, something good is coming out of the Azores. Uh, Randy Mello has written a pretty good book on this. I thank everybody for coming, and particularly those who participated. And remember that we have refreshments afterwards. And also, before we break, uh, uh, I'm sure that uh, I and uh, the participants would be glad to answer or attempt to answer any questions or comments you might have. Do you have any questions you'd like to ask any of those of us who read? Any, any questions in general? I could read you a Tonka and you could hear what it sounds like. Would that help? I'd like to hear it. <laughs> you know, you also, does the modern poetry differ in sound from the Some of her modern poetry is in five, seven <coughs> syllabic divisions. That's the oldest way of writing modern poetry. Um, and some of it is what you would call free verse. So in that sense, it, the sound patterns are different, yes. Yes. I, 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 was can't, I can't really answer your question very well because you just have to hear the poetry. She, there aren't any rules that she's following. Okay? Um, is that, sorry. Anything else? Did we have refreshments and please feel free to stay and linger and ask your questions individually perhaps. <coughs> 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 <coughs>